But when you both believe in the mission, you're able to give constructive feedback. You're able to take constructive feedback. You're able to go through challenges because you know on the other end, like this is the right move. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right. So on the pod today, we have two co-founders of Parva Starb that just raised a big round of funding. And I, I love talking to founders at this stage because it's such an exciting point from having an idea to really going to that next level of growth. Um, but we have Jordan Allen and Nick McLean of, of Dorsey, um, based local to me kind of out here in Washington. But Jordan, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah, so like I said before, this is a three-man podcast, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but I don't know. Um, maybe we can even start with you, Jordan. Just like a quick introduction of yourself. I kind of had three interesting careers. The first one was in the military. I did the Airborne Ranger program, uh, spent about three years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and absolutely loved it. It was you know, a leadership journey, an operational scale journey. You learned zero about venture and, and how to go raise capital. Um, kind of had a blank check uh, for both of those uh, timeframes. Um, after that, I founded a company called Stay Alfred. We operated close to 3,000 short-term rentals across the country. Things were, were going incredibly well until COVID hit and just, you know, urban core hospitality got rocked to its core in, in uh, kind of mid-March of, of 2020. And so after that, pivoted and uh, co-founded Dorsey here with Nick. And I have fewer interesting careers, mostly because I'm a lot younger than Jordan, like a lot <laughs> younger. He's yeah. Um, but I'm, I, uh, I founded a company called odd jobbers when I was actually still in college. It was kind of the classic like dorm room startup, uh, story, but we were a on-demand platform for household chores and projects. So we would hook, uh, typically older folks, um, in college towns up with college students who could have a super flexible work schedule and, you know, dynamically book them. So built some pretty cool technology there, got great traction in Spokane, um, raised a seed round here. And so that's kind of what propelled me into the, you know, venture capital startup space for good or for, for bad. Um, still loving it. So. Very cool. There, there's a lot there, actually. I'm especially Jordan with the military background and like leadership skills you've gotten from that is is um, something we can get into at the end. Um, but well, and I'm also interested to get into how did you two meet? How did you guys connect to eventually do Dorsey? Yeah, so we're here in CPN. It's a small community, and we got introduced uh, early on. Both of our companies, I would say, struggled. Might be a you know an easy <laughs> way out, but you know, it was really difficult and joined uh, together, met up and and really liked what each other was doing, thought we were complimentary and joined up. And that's kind of where the genesis of Dorsey started too, because when Jordan and I were introduced, we, you know, Jordan is kind of always going through the home buying process and I was going through my first round of it. And so I think we kind of, uh, you know, could, could kind of sh- share war stories about the home buying process and how uncertain it is, how unpredictable it is. Um, and so that's where, you know, the idea kind of started to form for Dorsey. Yeah. So I'd love for people that don't know, like, okay, what is this Dorsey thing? What, what's the pitch? How do you say that to someone that's, 
you know, not deep into the real estate industry, what is it? Yeah, I'd like to kind of go through a problem solution first before kind of explaining what it is. So I've bought roughly 100 homes here in Spokane. And over the last 18 months, it's been very apparent that we have a broken home buying process. I've submitted 70 offers on homes. I've been able to win four for me. But imagine being a first time home buyer, just really trying to buy a deal, especially when you can afford it. The problem is the listed price isn't the actual price. You have to guess on a set of terms that you hope the seller will accept. You have no idea what your competition's doing, up or down. And then finally, all those gotchas that blow the deal up, like inspection and seller disclosures, happen after the offer's accepted. So it's technically a blind auction process. So what Dorsey is, is we've unblinded the process. We do all the gotchas up front, seller disclosures, inspections, and really do a full disclosure process so you know what you're buying. Then we have buyers and their agents come onto the platform and bid, and you can see everyone else's bid. So you know exactly what to pay and exactly what you're getting before you buy a home. And we're giving buyers as consumers the power to win. We're giving them a scoreboard. They know why they won. They know why they lost. Nothing is more frustrating for me when I find out that I lost and I have no idea why. Every one of my offers ends like this. Real estate agent, tell me what it's going to take to get this deal done. And inevitably what happens is, well, you need to come up $60,000. Where did you get that number? Did you talk to somebody about that? Did you just make like, where did that come from? Well, now everybody knows exactly what it takes to win. Sellers get the highest price through a competitive process and real estate agents are able to earn more in less time and have like some efficiency in their, in their offer process. Yeah. Fundamentally, you know, the thing that makes no sense to, I think both of us is how can you expect people to transact when the price is unknown? I mean, we like, you can't really think of anything else in 2022 of, Hey, I can afford this thing and I want this thing but I'm not actually sure if I'm able to buy it. And it, you know, and so it's just like this incredibly frustrating, ambiguous process. And when first time home buyers come to, you know, approach a buyer, a buyer agent say, Hey, uh, I have this pre-approval up to 400,000. And then the real estate agent saying, Hey, well, you need to probably be looking at homes that are listed for 325 to 350. It makes no sense. And so we are here to find the market rate and make it, you know, a frictionless process to find a home, buy a home, um, and then move through closing for buyers, sellers, and agents. Yeah. So you're hitting on a, I think a sensitive or touchy subject for so many people right now. Like I live in Seattle and it is just monopoly money at this point to get a home. It's ridiculous. Like we, we have friends trying to live on Bainbridge Island and like their confidence is so low. They're like, we've put, like we've tried to get 60 homes and haven't gotten one. They're still in their rental. Like our neighbors, got their house because it was like bought site on scene. And they're like, we didn't even know what we were getting into on move-in day. But it's like the stuff you have to do to get a home, it's insane. And so like you're going after a very real problem. So just so I can unpack this for people, what's the value to the buyer, the seller, and the real estate agent? The buyer, it sounds like it's, it's more transparency in the process to get you a better shot at getting the home, right? So it's more color there. 
I guess where I have concerns, but I think you just addressed them. If I'm the seller of a home, sometimes that mystery is good, but you're saying you're able for the, they're able to maximize their price by listing their home with you because it's not a blind auction, it's an open op- auction. And then for these real estate agents, they care because their commission is going to be going up because the value goes up. Is that kind of the value prop to all three stakeholders? Exactly. Instead of the buyer guessing on terms and which contingencies to waive, the seller lets you know exactly what the terms are. And so buyers compete on price only. So they know exactly what it takes to win. They lose if they don't bid anymore. So because you didn't click that button, at least you know why you lost versus I'm going to blame my buyer's agent because they didn't have the inside track or they didn't go to high school together or was it my last name? Was it you know some other kind of un, like a bias that a real estate agent had of why I didn't get the home? Now it's a truly fair and unbiased home buying process. So you're basically making like eBay for homes or a transparent process. So how does this have to work? So first off, you need the seller to be listing their house on your platform, is that correct? So we work directly with the listing agent and buyer's agent. So we like to think of ourselves as the Justin Timberlake of home auctions with a twist. We We work with agents on both sides of the transaction. Agents are still just as valuable as they've ever been. In fact, their value proposition's gotten stronger as the market's gotten hotter, but the process is so painful. So we're not disrupting the agent, we're disrupting the process. And over time, as fees start to compress, you know, we think that there's going to be much less, much fewer agents that are making it up in volume and fees get less, just like every other industry. We're hoping that, you know, really good agents right now are able to sell three to five homes a month. Imagine if an agent was able to sell 10 homes in a day, what they'd be able to charge you because they have an efficient process. Yeah, I know. Yeah, those fees that they're able to charge are, are quite insane. So, I mean, this sounds great. How do you get adoption with this as you guys? Because this is an awesome idea. It's a worthwhile idea. How do you launch this? Because you can't just all of a sudden get every house in the country to go live. It sounds like the approach is city by city, neighborhood by neighborhood to build up the inventory and like own Spokane. Or what are you guys thinking? Well, you would have thought that would have been the case. But if you go look at the markets that we're in, we're all over the country and listings are are pouring in every day. What we've found is, you know, markets that are like Spokane that are a little bit more traditional hate our guts. Like this (laughs) does not land well with agents here because they still want to deliver offers and paper with it or paper and see the whites of your eyes. But when you go to more tech forward markets where there's a big millennial, you know, in migration happening a lot of people are moving in. They they just want to, the answers to the test. They're not familiar with the market. Now everybody knows exactly what it takes to win. And so getting agents that have already exposed to some technology or understand the value prop, like the early adopters get it within 30 seconds. One of the things we've learned too is that, you know, we we kind of started this thing thinking that we'd be able to grow our our team, you know, mostly in Spokane. And just calling people doing things virtually like you would kind of other B2B businesses. But we have learned kind of the hard way, the value of relationships being face-to-face and breaking bread with these people. Um, I mean, we are traveling every single, you know, almost every single week to a new market to like start these relationships with these people who have, you know, influence and are ready kind of to take the next step and and future-proof their business is, is kind of what we 
we call it because you know right now when a listing agent gets a seller they almost have a guaranteed paycheck right like they can they can do some photos they put on mls wait a few days and you're going to get some offers if it's priced even in the you know general vicinity of what it should be but you know what we want to do is get with these listing agents that are looking two, three, five, 10 years ahead and saying, hey, like my value proposition has to evolve. And so I'm going to start to look at these new technology companies that are coming out that are here, you know, sourced in the consumer pain and solving something for me so that I can then go increase my value proposition to my clients. That makes total sense. I mean, the, the, this idea is such an exciting one. The value prop is there and you have to have this kind of two-sided marketplace. You've got to build up the inventory of listings and then you've got to like get the eyeballs to come to. But obviously, as you build up the inventory, hopefully like the people will come. If I'm a buyer, I, I, I would. Um, but just even taking a step back, I love looking at companies from the idea or from the framework of idea attraction and then growth. So you all get together, you have this idea, which is really sharp, how did you validate that you had something and when did it click where like, wow, we're onto something. We should really look at doing this the right way and fundraise. I think it's important to mention too, we're, we're, we are missing a co-founder here on the, on the call as well, who was integral. He is like the reason that we were able to raise money and kind of launch as quickly as, as we did is because he is an absolute wizard in financial planning and analysis and, and data crunching, which real estate, that's the name of the game. Um, I mean, it was, it was funny, like it, we, we heard this uh, kind of quote from an investor when we sent over our financial model as a, as a seed company, you're not really typically expected to have something super in-depth based in data, like all of this kind of analysis, but we did um, because Matt is, is so good at that. And, you know, this investor told us that we sent over the, you know, the Excel file and it essentially blew up their MacBook pro because it was so huge and, you know, so many formulas. So um yeah, I just wanted to, you know, touch on that as well. But Jordan. Yeah. Um, well, we didn't know at first, you know, there's you have to be lightly convicted around your idea to have enough passion and, and kind of grit to follow it through, because, you know, this was a napkin idea in January of 2021. We built a platform out in call it June, had our first listing close in July. And when that first listing we had. We talked to 120 agents. It went out in the world without any bias. No brokers liked it or hated it. They just it just went out in the world. It flew the coop, and it worked exactly how it should. We had 49 questions come in. People were like, "Hey, is the air conditioning unit work? Is it going to be re repaired or replaced?" They got to see where all the bids came in. We had 33 bidders on the property. We had about 100 people come in and register to bid. We had 70 bids on the property. And, you know, the Zestimate was 325 and went for 392. I would say if you talk to the 120 agents, we asked them, where do you think the price is going to land? They came in at, you know, 335 to kind of 355. So like the, the, the buyer won because they got the property they wanted. They didn't pay 80,000 over the next person. They paid $500 over the next person. The seller won because they got the, you know, highest market bearing price at that time. You got to understand home prices are a function of the right price at the right person at the right time. Six months ago, is that a comp? Interest rates may have been different. What was available in the market may have been different. So what we do is we price, we give the market the opportunity to tell you exactly what your home is worth at that time. So I think after the first one, we knew. We knew that like we had caught fire. Those are good and bad moments. They're good because you know there was some product market fit. 
The bad is we thought we caught lightning in a bottle before we realized we need to go sell to individual agents across the country and brokerage firms. And so we made decisions a little bit differently, like this was going to fly off the shelves the first minute it came out. Was it because that home you got listed, you didn't do that through the agent? You you got them through the buyer or the seller? Sorry. No, we still listed through the agent. Yeah, we had, a, we, had a, we had a seller and we had the listing agent. It was actually one of my rental properties because I wanted to keep the blast radius small on the first one. We bought a handful of properties just to see how this thing was going to work. Felt like it was a fairly risk-free decision to, to be able to do that. And so then like the first three were rocket ships. The next three were dumpster fire. And we've learned more from those next three than we've learned from all of our listings combined. Okay, I want to get into the dumpster fire for sure. But taking a step back, Nick, talk to me about this sounds like a pretty sophisticated version one that you're building if it's facilitating all this, because a lot of people like you guys get together, you have this idea, you put it in the wild. But a lot of times people can spend so much time working on that MVP, the minimum viable product or the V1. What did it actually look like and how long did it take to create that first version that went live with Jordan's rental property? So, you know, the funny thing is that it doesn't look vastly dissimilar than what it looks like right now, actually. After it was built and we kind of put those first few listings out in the wild, we were kind of making tweaks after that first one, kind of in the dumpster fire era. And then we started to kind of like roll things back and peel kind of the layers back in order to get to like, hey, this is truly is our MVP. So to answer your question about kind of timeline, so napkin idea in January of 2021, and we spent, you know, the next four or five months like building, dialing in the pitch, talking to investors, talking to literally anyone that would listen about what we're doing. And so in that process, we were, you know, making course corrections and things. I think a classic mistake that pretty much every founder will say they've made is that they build beyond the MVP and it takes them too long to get out in the market. I don't remember the, you know, there's a famous entrepreneur kind of quote that was like, if you're not embarrassed by your MVP, then you waited far too long to get it into the market. And so I think, you know, since Jordan and I have kind of done this thing before, I don't think we made that mistake too much, but I still think that we could have gone out maybe a little bit earlier and not overbuilt because if, when you do that, then you kind of have to go backwards, peel back the layers and kind of like recenter and then start making progress. That's a lesson that I'm, I would, I'm probably going to learn again at some point, but. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, to, to touch on that, there's certain industries and certain businesses that you can't have a half-baked product. Like you can't have a half-baked data security product. The other thing is when it comes to like residential real estate agents, there's Facebook groups where there's 50,000 agents in one group or a hundred thousand agents in one group. And you go out and have some half-baked product that screws up the sale of somebody's most important asset in their entire life and world. Like this is more sensitive than uh, some other products. And I think a lot of VCs unfortunately get it wrong. Like, oh, hey, it's, it's all learning. It's all testing. Nobody's gonna remember the things you screwed up. Well, that's not entirely true in like real estate agent technology. Um, they will remember what you, how you, what you said a year ago, and they don't understand that you can iterate every two weeks. You know, they remember what you said a year ago. Yeah, that's a good point. An MVP, if it's like a consumer startup where you do fun image filters, it's different than fintech, prop tech, like data security, where that MVP needs to 
actually be very, very, very buttoned up. So you've got it live. You you see some potential potential signals. This is working. We also see things that don't work. Talk about like you're getting feedback, good and bad, and how that drives your product roadmap. Like, what was that experience like? The the bad feedback is is so easy to remember. Um, you know, it's you kind of have to have this filter when you're talking to people that have interacted with your product because you have to remember that you know they don't see the exact same vision that that you do because you you kind of see the full gambit and they see maybe a sliver. And so you have to have this filter where you're lightly convicted and being willing to like hold loosely and, and make changes, make corrections or, or test things out, I think is incredibly important. But there's this balance where you have to like steer towards the, the uh, vision that you kind of set out for, because we, you know, sometimes we joke, we, we call this the blind, the current offer process, we call it the blind offer process. And so we kind of joke sometimes, like if we just only based our product decisions based on what we hear from like certain agents or, you know, other folks, then we would just be building another technology platform to propagate the blind offer process. There's this balance where you have to build towards what your consumer wants, but also, you know, go and realize the vision that you, you, that got you kind of put on this course. Yeah. Getting product feedback is not always good feedback for the future vision (laughs) of the product, I think is what Nick's saying. The single biggest thing that we did that has transformed our business is we used to, um, when a listing would go live, it'd be open for bidding the entire period. So if it was listed for seven days, bids would come in. What happens is people don't like to bid until the end. And so sellers would feel like the product wasn't working. They didn't see any bids coming in. Like, oh man, we shouldn't have done this. So we closed it off and did a showing period. So now no offers can come in. Now they're disincentivized to come in with a paper offer. And then we do on the last day, it creates a combustion chamber of bidding activity. And each bid validates you to go higher because you feel like, you know, it's a $500 or $1,000 higher. That's easy. It's not like you have to jump up 80000 It's like, I'm out. Like, that's too big of a financial decision to, to come up without knowing where anybody else is at. Now things are flying off the shelves. We actually have a listing going live today in uh, Los Angeles. And, you know, right out of the gate, we've got three bids that came in. Uh, It's been shown for seven days. We've had 120 showings. We've got about 30 registered bidders on the platform. Get your popcorn out. It should be fun. So it's really exciting to watch. When you're just watching it and you're seeing bids come in, it's not as emotional. But when you're a part of the buying process or the selling process, imagine watching your, your neighbor's home sell live. It's so exciting. See the comments and the questions coming in. Who's bidding? What are they saying? It's, you know, some people think we take the emotion out of the real estate transaction process. 100% wrong. We like 10x the amount of emotion that pours into the process. I already have anxiety thinking about trying to get like the home we want in our neighborhood for our kids. Seeing like, and also, I mean, you kind of open the playing field for people if they're just on your platform looking for, you know, houses in certain areas um, to, to really come in, which I mean, at the end of the day is, is good for the, the seller, but um, man, that's super interesting. You have a whole content play you guys could do with that. People love bidding wars and the drama with this. So yeah, your, uh, your blog could be quite uh, entertaining. 
the agents in Atlanta like to say that, you know, at the end of a listing, it's like watching a Georgia Alabama football game. And, it's, <laughs> and, it, and it, I mean, it, it, tr- it truly is. And it's funny because it's like in the traditional process, it's like, Hey, there was a Georgia and Alabama football game. Here's who won. But for Dorsey, you watch every single second of it, the fumbles, the, you know, touchdowns, the, the sacks, like whatever it is, there's value in kind of seeing the entire thing through rather than just saying, oh yeah, you know, this home sold for this. A lot of the marketing we've got today or a lot of the, you know, discussion around our platform is like, this is for bidding wars to facilitate bidding wars. But the reality is we're here to set market price. You know, if you look at other auction platforms, they were all built in 2008, 2009, 2010 to liquidate foreclosed properties. Because although hot markets have vicious cycles, so do down markets. Homes sit for longer. People can't afford to pay for them. So they go into foreclosure. They end up losing their house. The rest of the market starts. When you have a foreclosure sell in your neighborhood, it brings everybody's values down. Well, it, you, that happened because you mispriced the home. If you would have started really low and let people come in and compete, and enter the game and, and, and bid it up, you'll bid it to where the market price is. So this works in both up and down markets. It's not just to you know, overbid on homes, it's to set the market price. Yeah, and I'm interested to get into the like competitive landscape and everything that's out there, but th- this is uh, very innovative. So you, you've got the product life, you're getting wins, you're getting dumpster fires, but you're getting some amazing learnings. At what point did you all know like, hey, let's go fundraise and talk me through what that process was like? Because obviously it was successful. Yeah, well, uh, we because I've, you know, was fairly well connected <laughs> in the venture capital space for my last company, I started fundraising when this was a napkin idea. I started calling VCs and being like, hey, check out this idea. What do you think? you know, love it, hate it, you know, you cut out the agent, we'll never uh, invest in you or cut out the agent or we won't invest in you. So you end up kind of figuring out what makes sense, what's the right path. And so like that process gives confidence to VCs. Hey, I have an idea. Cool. Everybody does. Hey, look, we built the like version one. Hey, we stole the home. Hey, we got four more homes to sell. All of a sudden they got to follow you from inception and build confidence the entire way. The biggest learning lesson that I screwed up on personally was I only went out to meet VCs when we needed to go raise money, the wrong time to do it. Like you need to be building a relationship, letting them know your wins and losses as you're going through, how you're overcoming challenges. Cause it's, it's still very relationship based. And we actually raised that, that 4.1 million before our first listing, even, even close. So we were like pre-revenue, pre-traction, and I, I attribute that pretty much solely to Jordan is a psycho on meetings. You should see his calendar. It's literally 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. every single day. We'll talk to anyone. It does not matter who you are, what you do, if you have bought a home. And so that started, that process started when this thing was a napkin idea. So, you know, talking to people in San Francisco, LA, New York, this entire time while we're kind of still in the garage, like building this thing. And it really helped us shape kind of like the the product vision and how to sell it, the messaging. And so, you know, we were able to raise money before, before, you know, we had traction. Um, So it's a good thing that first listing went well, because that was right after we closed. (laughs) (laughs) 
the, so there's a lot of good stuff in here. But first, as an aside, I don't know if we were recording, but before we were talking about maybe the different lifestyles that Nick and Jordan has, whereas one yeah. of you is a dad with three kids, the other is maybe not a dad with three kids and a little bit more... Uh, <laughs> Definitely el- not, yeah. El- el- eligible, but um, to, to speak for the, the dad side of it, I feel like once you have kids like you get so productive and efficient with your time. We're like, I'll just cram meetings from eight to five until daycare pickup. So I feel like Jordan, you're running like at a, at a really good clip right now. But um, one thing that's really interesting is the advice of if you want to raise money, don't just do it right when you raise, get connections, start networking with these potential investors and don't ask for money, but, Ask them about the idea and that let them follow the journey because you're doing these different touch points with them. And each time you're just showing momentum, which I think has to yeah. like cross a, a barrier for them. We're like, oh, wow, these guys are legit and they're doing this. And so it, it sounds like that was pretty intentional to make sure not only is this a good idea, but is this a good investment? But then you're able to kind of show like, hey, we've got a legit team and look at the pace that we're working. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of feedback from VCs on, you know, they'll give you the answers to the test too. Is it scalable? Is this a market that's interesting? Are you solving a real problem or is this like a fake problem? In the home buying process, it affects people's moms, dads, brothers, sisters, anybody who's out trying to buy a home is going through this process. And if you, when you call them on the phone and they lost the home, it's, it's devastating. Like you visualize yourself in that home with your kids playing in the backyard, you know, especially when you have, when you have a family and you lose out and, you know, finally, you know, there's a huge segment right now of what they call regret homes, millions of homes. And it's where, oh my gosh, I didn't even know what to do. I was so caught up. I bought this home. I hate it. It's got five foot ceilings in the basement. Like what, what the hell was I thinking? And so I think there's going to be a lot more homes that come back on the market as things kind of simmer down. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, getting that getting that uh, feedback from VCs early. Not that it should, like, you should still have a vision and you should believe in what you're doing. If you just, you know, change it based off whatever VC says, like, you'd never end up going there. But I think they help you refine and also give you, like, the buzzwords and the, and the things that need to be included, you know, in your pitch. So... Yeah, that, that's really good. They say, like, don't, if you ask for money, you'll get advice. Ask for advice, you'll get money. So it looks like it, it definitely worked <laughs> out very well for, for you all. So um, so here's another question I had that I've been thinking about with you guys. Like, this is an awesome idea. You guys are really a, a, a strong team and, like, your skill sets align. But it's also, this is a competitive landscape, right? You've got, you know... Zillow, you've got, you know, open, what is it? What's the open one that door. Keith or Boy did? I can't remember where they're like buying houses, open door, or I can't remember the yep, name. Yeah, open door. Um, you, you've got a lot of options out there, but you guys are like, no, let's still go after this. That's probably a good sign because there's so much demand. But how do you position yourself against all these other big players that are out there that could maybe think about entering the, the segment that you're yeah. in? Well, it's a huge challenge. I mean, we're playing amongst giants, which is why, you know, when it comes to raising capital to create awareness for not only real estate agents, but home buyers and sellers and build a, a truly trusted platform, you know, it, it's going to take capital to to do that. I think when you look at large companies, like why didn't somebody do Uber? Why didn't somebody do Airbnb? Why, like it's so easy to sit back, but they've got their you know, five-year strategies, they've got their three-year plans, their annual goals. 
And yeah, sure, they could go try to throw some money at a problem and spit it off. But they're not like, it's like the movie 300. You know, we are, this is exactly what we do. This is all we do. This is all we think about. How, like, it's, you know, it's bidding all day, every day. And how do we create a fair and truly transparent home buying process? That's it. And so we'll win the day on that mission. Yeah. And, and to speak to the, the, you know, competition, I think, you know, there's, there's companies like Zillow, Opendoor, um, then tech enabled brokerages like Orchard or, or Fly Homes. You know, I think we all kind of see the problem you know, kind of the same problem, but we see it from a little bit different angles. And then the solutions that we're all building are kind of aimed at, at different pieces of that. So, you know, the way we compare ourselves to folks like, uh, you know, Open Door or iBuyers is, hey, you go to Open Door because you do not want to go through the home selling uh, process because there's there's so much friction, heartbreak, these things. So you go to them for, you know, an all cash offer that you can close on in a couple of days. And you know what? You know why Open Door works? Because they're buying, you know, the home for a little bit less than they can sell it. You come to you come to a real estate agent who comes to Dorsey in order to go through this this process that yes, we're improving and, and taking the friction out of, but to get the highest market bearing price for your home um, and and sell it through this transparent process. So it's different segments. I think we're trying to solve the same problem, but it just in different ways. No, very cool. Yeah, it, it's a pretty massive category that uh, that of real estate. So it's it's owning your segment and having your head down on it. Um, very cool. And so I think a lot of people that are listening, you know, very impressed by the idea of what you've done. But also, you all seem to have a really strong team. Talk to me about what advice you'd give to people as you're trying to figure out who's a good co-founder, who's a good business partner, you know, is it opposites have different skill sets? Is it having like a same common like mission? Like how did you all kind of in those early days, you know, realize like the three of you guys would be a good team? Assuming you guys are a good team. It sounds like (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I don't, I don't know what makes a good co-founder. I'm trying to still find one, but Uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll kind of answer that with a little different take on it. So we're based here in Spokane, Washington. If those of you don't know, listening, it's the home of uh, Gonzaga basketball. It's like it's the biggest thing ever here. But anyways, when you're raising capital, if you're not in, you know, San Francisco or New York with my last company, we were based here and people were like, I don't want to fly to Spokane for a board meeting. I don't know. Like, how are you going to be able to hire talent? Like to, you know, to be a billion dollar company. And maybe those were fair questions at the time. But now you've seen such a, uh, a transformation of people just moving all over the country. And so not one VC during our capital raise asked where we're at, asked how we're going to acquire talent, asked how we're going to be able to compete because we're based in Spokane. It was like such a in such a short period of time one year to see that difference because now we can recruit talent from all over the world we are truly at equal of anyone else in any other place our board meetings are done on zoom our you know a lot of our meetings are done here in person and now we have the ability to attract talent anywhere in the country so now you know we're opened up beyond just like what we have here in Spokane and people in San Francisco are opened up beyond just what's there so we get to hire the best people on the planet. We've been trying to do that. Yeah, and and to speak to you know what makes a good co-founder, I think what you have to what you cannot live without when you're when you're working with someone, you know, in this capacity is 
you have to have the same amount of passion and want to move at the same velocity. It's kind of like a, you know, a three-legged race. If you have one person running a lot faster than the other one, you're either you're going to be doing circles or you're going to be, you know, on your ass. So, I think like Jordan I and and Matt our other co-founder all have the same level of of passion um and just like you know wanting to solve the problem so quickly and we're all kind of moving at the same pace and I think that's really what it takes among other things um but you can't live without that uh, you know when you're starting something with someone else I think buying into the mission is everything you'll see you know I've had other co-founders and other businesses you know in the past and it's hard and so if you're you know, if you're not believing in the mission, it's really easy to talk yourself out of why you shouldn't be a co-founder. But when you both believe in the mission, you're able to give constructive feedback. You're able to take constructive feedback. You're able to go through challenges because you know on the other end, like this is the right move. Not every real estate agent has been, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the future. Some of them hate our guts. You should see some of the emails we've received of like, nobody in my brokerage will ever use your platform because you're taking their ability to weigh negotiate and this is a terrible product. I don't see why anybody would ever use this. You know what? Great. That's that's why other companies exist and why other options exist because there isn't a one size fits all for everybody. But I think when it comes to a co-founder and your team, that like that level of commitment into the mission is more important than your experience. It's more important than how talented you are. It really does boil down to commitment. That's such good advice. Um, two two big call outs there that that I think resonate with me is like mission focus. Like, are we all on the same page with what you are going for? Because even me and my, I have an agency, but like we had that same goal of like how we're building this and what the goals are. But a second point, Nick, that you said is like, are you kind of working at the same pace? Because if not, there could be resentment. But if everybody's like in the trenches grinding, it's it's actually like really energizing. And so you, you've got to have that. It's like if you're going at 100 miles per hour, you want the other person like right there with you. Um, no, very cool. I, I have a I have a perfect analogy I'd love to share with you on this. Um, <laughs> Bring it. My, because it's a military background. But in a military operation, you go through four phases. You have storming the beach, occupational phase, policing, and governance. And so if you take a governance CEO and put him on the beach, they're out there with their map and they're with their compass and they're trying, it's like they're getting shot at. So like, I think it's really important when you, when you just talk about energy, the storming the beach energy is, Hey, rules, regulations, all that. Like you're just trying to get off the beach and see if somebody will give you a, a dollar for your business. Is there any product market fit? You're okay with mistakes. You're okay with, it's all about speed, moving fast, learning, trying new things. And so I think that's a big part of it is, kind of knowing what segment of the business you're in where you provide value and just owning that. Like we've, we've seen a lot of people try to hire in big institutional players, great names. They come in at this stage and they need 35 people to be able to function. Like, you know, (laughs) we're really looking for like kind of your working executives or people that, um, you know, they still know how to make larger strategic decisions, but still know how to pick up a rifle and fire it. Like recruiting in this environment, is harder than normal. Uh, you know, why leave your cushy job uh, to come join a company this, at this stage? So it's really important that we lay out what stage we're in so we, we can recruit the right people. Oh, that, that's really, really good example too. I've never heard that analogy from military. Um, and even to kind of go a, a step further on that, like what are some things from your military background, Jordan, 
that have been really applicable to being a business owner that, that people might not think of? Yeah. Uh, well, it's kind of fascinating, maybe a boring example, but, you know, the way the United States military packs their rucksack, you know, ammunition goes here, first aid kit goes here, like is all packed the same. And the reason is if you have a fallen soldier, you need their first aid kit or you need their ammunition, like, you know, exactly where to go to get it. And it scales across everywhere, which is why, like, they have you dump out your rucksack and they check it. And it's constantly, it's like constantly a training kind of exercise. Well, the same thing is true in business. If you don't have like standards, you know, at the carnival, like you must be this tall to ride the ride. If you don't have standards, it's really hard to, to scale and be efficient. And so, um, you know, how much customization do you allow if you're so custom that you can't scale or you kind of lose value prop? That's why I love Airbnb. Here's our cancellation policy. You got chocolate or vanilla. Here's our, you know, uh, your few options, like they just don't give you that. So it's easy for the customer to understand where other companies, I think if you look at the traditional kind of offer process that exists today, every offer that comes in is a completely unique and custom document. And there it's technically like horse trading. We joke here at the office that, you know, even horse traders don't sell their horses via horse trading. They sell them at auction. And so because it's <laughs> that's pretty good. And so like, I think that's the biggest thing is how do you create that certain level of standardization that scales in your business, but still allowing for some personalization? Yeah, my COO would be very happy to hear that we're investing in SOP standard operating procedures. And while they're boring, it's so necessary to scale. But that's a really cool example of the rucksack that yeah. um, didn't think of well, that. Somebody leaves, somebody leaves your company. Now you have this big void and somebody's coming in. They don't know what documents or systems or what they're responsible for trying to hire for that position. It's not clear. You know, those SOPs go further than just like a step-by-step process. They go like, what kind of person do we need to lead this part of the business? Yeah. It's all about creating that redundancy, you know, let people come in and help scale. I, so I have two more questions before we close out, but one is you guys have your finger on the pulse with real estate, with real estate tech. What are things you're excited or keeping an eye on, you know, over the next few years or even months with with trends or or things that could be interesting? I would say like what you are doing is quite innovative with the category, but what else is something that that could be coming? One of the things that I that I love are are these companies like um, Homeward Orchard Fly Homes. Um, ribbon. Essentially, what they do is they they looked at you know to be honest, it's pretty similar to problem to that that we're solving. And they said, hey, um, you know, in the in the U.S., it's actually not really like this in Canada, but in the in the U.S., you know, most people are financing the homes that they're trying to buy. And one of the big uh, issues when a buyer goes and submits an offer is like, what is what kind of financing situation are they in? Um, cash, you know, cash buyers are. Uh, much more favorable among sellers because there's this perceived um, like lower risk of of the financing falling through when it's under contract. So these companies have said, "Hey, okay, um, what if we, you know, there's a couple different models, but essentially, like, what if we go and allow buyers to buy with cash? Um, these kind of alternative financing companies. And so, you know, an example of Homeward, which I I find you know, pretty fascinating model is they say, hey, send us uh, your, your pre-approval. We'll kind of underwrite you. We'll go buy the home on your behalf and then we'll sell it back to you when you're ready, when you've sold your existing home um, or when you've kind of lined up financing. And so I think 
the, the thing that I love is looking at these other companies who have identified the same or similar problem that we did and solved it in these little bit different ways. Number one, because there's going to be synergies between their company and ours, but also just seeing like where buyers are going and what's interesting to consumers um, can really kind of guide our product decisions as well. The things I'm really excited about are, you know, uh, and these are, again, legacy, really boring industries. But uh, and one of them is out of uh, out of Seattle. Inspectify is an inspection software. But instead of letting inspectors write whatever they want, now they get drop downs and like uh, structured data. So now they can tell, is this home like are these problems different than other homes in the area? And, you know, now that can go to Freddie and Fannie and get underwritten. Like there's just so many interesting things to do with home data. Hey, here's repairs that you're going to need. And here's how much the repair costs are going to be when you get an inspection done. I think that stuff's brilliant. I think the second one are these like desktop appraisals. One of the biggest things that's holding up financing right now is appraisals. They're 45, you know, 60, 90 days out in certain markets. Now they have the seller use their phone, go through the house like a human tripod. Why an inspector's on the, or an appraiser's on the other end giving measurements, looking for damage, looking for other things. And now they can do, they can get an appraisal set up, scheduled and completed in two days. It's brilliant. So now instead of waiting 90 days to close, now you can have a, a, like what we're hoping for and the vision for us is a transaction happens like immediately when the timer's over with, the inspection's been done, the appraisal's been done, the financing's pre-approved, you know, we'll finance you out on the back end, but the cash goes in the seller's bank and the buyer gets financed out. And it's uh, just as natural and smooth as buying anything else online. Man, speed sales. You'll be the Amazon of houses if you're able to pull that off. That, that's pretty, yeah, it's, pretty exciting. <laughs> we, we recognize it's a lofty goal that's uh, going to lose a lot of our brain cells. We're expecting seven fourths of our brains to be gone by the end of this. <laughs> That's all right. But then, you, then you'll have an island somewhere where you can just sit my ties and you'll be good. But no, I um, it, the thing that's fun about this idea is it's not a matter of like if it could be possible. It's a matter of when it's almost like this is inevitable. It will happen. It's a matter of is it the right time? And are you guys the ones to do it? Which I think is exciting. God. So we're going to use that. I hope you don't mind in our pitch. We're going to go refine. Hey, guys, this is going to happen. You just got to believe that we're the ones that are going to do it. Perfect. Absolutely. I'll send you my affiliate code. <laughs> it's it's all about it's all about timing. And I, you know, I think Jordan and I can we've we've seen bad timing, like really, really bad timing, uh, <laughs> namely COVID. Um, and so and it and it's been it's been fascinating to see the kind of tailwinds of I you know, I think we've really nailed the timing, to be honest, with like this product, where the real estate industry and the and the market is at right now. Um and so, you know, it's it's been amazing kind of seeing the the wind in our sails um, as people start to like look at this incumbent industry and say, hey, um, you know, technology's coming. Like you said, this is going to happen at some point. So can we be the ones that execute um, and raise the capital, find the team, have the brand um, and nail it? Yeah, timing, it's so hard. It's, it's the most important lever potentially out, out of everything that you just can't even pull or control. Um but that, well, that's really cool. One of the reasons why we've mentioned the word lightly convicted so many times is some people are so convicted that no matter what anybody tells them, they're on a path of destruction. And so lightly convicted for us means, hey, we believe this a lot. 
but we're going to test it. We're going to A-B test. We are A-B testing stuff all the time so that we can learn much quicker. If you think of like the Wright brothers flying their plane, they didn't develop the best plane. They developed the best wind tunnel so that they could test and get that plane off the ground the quickest and make uh, changes instantly. That's really what we're focused on is how can we run so many tests and really get to the heart and soul of the issue? Because we've been wrong a lot too, which is that we didn't get to talk about the dumpster fire, but that's, that's, that was the, oh, this is how it's going to work. Uh, it turns out that wasn't how it was going to work. Gotcha. But because you were, had, I forgot what you said. It was right now. I said the, the light conviction or what, what did you say? Lightly convicted. Yeah. Because you want to like have your overall mission, but how you get there, you're open to be flexible and not just be like, this is the path. We're doing it regardless because you've got to listen to the market. Yeah. Well, well, I know we're running up on time. There, There is one question I like to hit on with everybody and it's, I like to ask both of you guys, what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your career? So for me, it was, uh, you know, I, I would say the Spokane entrepreneurship community has been kind of like life-changing for me, to be honest. So when I, when I started Odd Jobbers, like I kind of mentioned, in a dorm room, like literally just just putting together 15 different kind of internet applications. I'm not a developer, but we, we kind of got it figured out. And so as we started to get traction, um, you know, the Spokane entrepreneurship community just is, is so open and kind of willing to, you know, hear ideas regardless of the experience of, of the founder. And so that was really kind of what helped me put my, my foot in the door. And lo and behold, you know, through that process, you know, went through tons of uh, like pitches and refinements and iterations. And so I think I would say the nicest thing that's, that's happened to me is like that openness to mentor people, to, to let them put their foot the door and then, you know, fund them to go, to go make something happen um, is really, you know, that was kind of the, the turning point I would say for me. That's cool. It just gives you a taste of like entrepreneurship and what it could be about to see like, wow, this is something I'm excited to do. That, that's a good one. Uh, I'd say for me, um, man, there's so many. I mean, you have people that come in and out of your lives and develop you at different points of time. You know, uh, there's a guy named Tim Barish. He was the CFO of Toast. They're an enterprise SaaS restaurant uh, player. Anyways, I met him at a bus stop in Vail at, a, at an investment uh, convention. And he's like, hey, I need to get you introduced to people because you're in Spokane. You don't really know anybody. So he he got he bought me a ticket. We went down to San Francisco and he introduced me to 45 or 50 VCs. Luckily, like he was in such a hot company, everybody took his call. Like when he was coming down, people were like begging him to come in. But then he went in, he's like, you know, I don't want to say it was a bait and switch, but you know, hey, I'm with Toast. Oh, hey, I want to introduce you to this other guy while we're here. And so, you know, that really kicked off um, you know, a relationship with with dozens of VCs that were, that I got to meet. And I'd say the number one thing that entrepreneurs struggle with is like, how do I even start? Like, I don't know people, I don't know any VCs. I don't know how this gets going. Well, take every call, take every meeting, ask people are willing to do introductions for you. And, you know, some people just want to help. And I think Tim did an incredible job uh, in doing that. And, you know, that guy's just been on a rocket ship career but I've got 30 other people I'd you know love to mention on you know that helped me throughout my my career. 
That's really good story and advice on just ask and just take every meeting and be like very open. And, and one of the cool, where's this bus stop? What happened in this bus stop where he's taking you to San Francisco? <laughs> where in Vail is this? I need to go hang out there. It was funny because we were staying at the worst uh, hotel in Vail. It was the cheapest one. Everybody else was at the Four Seasons. And so there's this guy and he's like hunched over and he's got this like black sweatshirt on. Uh, looked like he was from a rock band later found <laughs> out that he was in a rock band and then became the CFO of toast. And he's just uh, like such a brilliant and incredible person anyways. Um, so we started talking about some like, Holy cow, this guy's like a genius. He's brilliant. He understands everybody's connected to everybody. And so over the next kind of few months and ended up uh, bringing him onto our board and you know, you just meet certain people that have that X factor. And he had like a two X three X factor of anybody I've ever met. Like I said, we'll talk to anyone, regardless of whether they want to talk to you. That's that's Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> Only right. he would find an investor at a bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, shoot, I'm going to talk to everybody now. That's really good advice. Well, thank you guys so much for the time. This was a really good one. And uh, last thing, if people want to find out more about you all, about Dorsey, where would you like to point them? Yeah, come find us on LinkedIn, uh, info at Dorsey.com. Uh, if you got my email, uh, my phone number, 509-994-4781, I don't care. Like, just like I said, we'll take calls with anybody. Magic happens when you, when you let people connect with you. The first phone number dropped. That's pretty good. Nick, yeah. I don't know if you want to send your phone number out for any available women or anything. but You can, uh, you can, just, you can just play back Jordan's phone number for mine. Um, uh, no, yeah, link, LinkedIn. Uh, you know, Dorsey.com. And like I said, we'll, we take meetings all day, every day. It, I will say it's not for the lighthearted. It's exhausting going back to back doing meetings like this all day. You have to have a different energy level. So don't try it if you're not willing to sign up for the meetings or you'll ruin your reputation real fast. Yeah, totally. You have the coffee ready and don't be a jerk. Yeah, that, that's really good advice. Um, well, cool. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. This was a blast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. All right, go Hawks. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.